Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So this is... uh episode about trapping we've done episodes i think every winter curtis something to do with trapping uh and i don't know i i like them Uh, i think folks like them even though like this is the hunter conservationist podcast Uh, i just think people across canada are are interested in trapping just you know some hunters are trappers and some trappers are hunters and some hunters have mm-hmm. trappers in their family or friends or, you know, at some point, uh, you know, the, the two communities are, are overlay on top of each other really well. So it's always exciting to do, to do a trapping podcast, uh, especially now that trapping season has, has opened in some parts of the country. So if I remember this right from my trapper, uh, training course, um, Traps kind of fall into three basic categories. So there's restraining traps. Uh, so you have the 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 foot restraining traps uh, that just hold an animal by by its paw or somewhere along the metatarsals. Um, some of them have offset jaws. Some of them are padded. Don't do any damage to the animal's foot. They simply hold it there. If it's an animal that the trapper wants to take, it's usually dispatched with. Uh, a firearm, if it's uh, something the trapper doesn't want, young, female, whatever, however they're managing their furs, they can um, release that uh, animal by avoiding tooth and claw. So there's some pretty cool videos of folks releasing bobcats with these pieces of plywood between them and the bobcats. It's kind of kind of interesting uh, to watch. Then there's killing traps. And that's one that I think most people might know as the conibear trap. Uh, the, the square box thing with the two big springs on the side. Conibear is an actual brand. Uh, as I know it, they're now collectively referred to as body gripping traps. 
they have different sizes for different animals, and they, the the ideal catch is a is a double catch where both bars hit the animal neck, back of the head, and somewhere uh, across the the um, the vital organs, and it can be uh, pretty much an instantaneous kill. And then the last category is killing snares. Um, so that's what the focus of this episode is going to be on is we're going to dive into the science and best practices around killing snares because there are a number of anti-trapping campaigns going on in Canada that are trying to isolate the snare, the use of killing snares as their weapon against trapping. Um, my opinion is, is they're not really looking to improve trapping standards because if they were, they'd be on some of the committees like our guest is and digging into the science and improving the technology, but they're actually just using this as a leverage to try to call for the outright ban of all trapping. Um, the stuff I see in these campaigns, they talk about, you know, snares, the use of snares in trapping, they're inhumane, they're cruel, uh, they aren't allowed under the uh, agreement on international humane trapping standards, which Canada is a signator to, uh, they don't meet the the um, the humane killing standards that are laid out in the international agreement. This is some of the stuff that I'm seeing out there, and you know, frankly, a lot of what the campaigns I see are are full of misinformation to to the point where actually I kind of think that it's a bit of a disaster out there, and. Uh, unfortunately, the public doesn't get a chance to really understand um, the true story here. I've seen videos um, that the anti-trapping groups put out of coyotes caught in snares. And the best that I can tell, not being an expert like Ross, our guest, is I think they were staged. Um, they were staged in a way that the animals weren't anchored properly, they weren't caught properly, and I wouldn't even put it past some of these groups who have actually put stoppers on the snare so they didn't fully um, black the animal out, but they just wanted to capture this on video and, and show people something. I've learned about individuals involved in anti-trapping campaigns that have been caught by conservation officer services tampering. Uh, with traps, trying to get their dogs caught in wolf snares so they can film it. I've seen research papers that have been published to try to show that snares are not <clears throat> a humane and, and effective way of killing. One paper I looked at just the other day, it was actually published in a journal overseas which the journal has recently been identified as what they call a predatory scientific journal. In other words, it's not legitimate. What this scientific journal does <clears throat> is it's a money-making machine. And scientists pay these journals to publish their papers, and they don't do rigorous peer review on the science. So whatever you want to say kind of gets the thumbs up, and it gets published. So you get to say it's published science but it's a bogus basically a bogus system and i recently saw a scientific article that an anti-trapping group was quoting saying look what this scientific paper said that snares are not not humane um <clears throat> i've seen other other claims um <clears throat> that canada's um 
certified traps <clears throat> are not all that good. Um, and I understand there's people out there that actually have patents on traps themselves that are trying to get those into the system so they can make money off of it. So they're trying to discredit um, the, the already certified traps. So it's a mess out there, folks. It's a real mess of information on on what trappers are, are actually doing. So to, to help cut through all this mis misinformation and understand the technology and where we're at with the use of killing snares in Canada for coyotes uh, is our guest, Ross Hinter. Welcome, Ross. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Ross, uh, you are you you are with the Alberta Trappers Association. Are you still liaison and program development person yes. manager? Okay. Yep. And I also understand you're uh, a member of the Fur Institute of Canada's um, Trap and Research Development Committee that oversees this stuff. Actually. Yeah, I'm the Alberta chair for that. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. And how long have you been trapping? <laughs> well, most of my life, Mark, I've, I've been a trapping instructor now for just over 30 years and oh, it, it's been my way of life. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You got some great videos out there. I've, I've seen them over the years. Um, Thank you. Just educational videos and stuff. And actually one, uh, Best practices on how to talk to adjacent landowners. I really like that one, and the one about how to uh, release pets from traps. So good, good stuff out there. Hey, everybody! It's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, your co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Pro Podcast is brought to you by J Martin Taxidermy in Kelowna, BC. J Martin Taxidermy is a small family-run operation, and they specialize in preserving your hunting memories. Mounts are cool. We got quite a few of them. I think everybody should have them. They're uh, a good way to preserve, look back on all the hunts you had. And uh, I was thinking about this today. I was like, well, how, what am I gonna? How am I gonna spin the ad tonight? And I'm like, um, I remember growing up, we had all the mounts in our basement and uh, a lot of friends, a lot of neighbors, a lot of people who were non hunters who would come over and it would spark a really cool discussion with people about hunting. People were like, Oh wow, I've never seen a deer up close. And it's like they go up and they kind of want to see it and look at it and get right up close and questions about this and questions about that. And we had pretty much everything from, bears to mountain goats and sheep and deer and i think the only thing we didn't have was like a full size shoulder elk or moose but we pretty much had everything else and and uh so yeah that's a that's a good way maybe you can uh convince your spouse that you're helping hunting by getting a mount because then you can talk to people and have a positive discussion about hunting centered around the mount so maybe you can spin that in some sort of way but uh as always, we're uh, very excited and proud to have J. Martin Taxidermy as the title sponsor for the show here. Thanks again. You bet. And I just also want to take this opportunity to kind of do the plug that I've been doing for the last uh, few episodes to encourage people to um, subscribe and listen to Tommy's Outdoors podcast. So Tommy Serafinski from Ireland 
<clears throat> does a lot of very similar topics to what we do on this show. Science, conservation, hunting, outdoor activities, um, rewilding, but it's, it's a lot of his podcasts are dealing with all of these topics on the other side of the ocean from us. And so I think it's super important to be well-schooled in all aspects of these hunting conversations all over the world and, and follow and listen to folks from other countries, hear what their perspectives are and hear what some of the issues are. And I think it, it better equips us as hunters and trappers in this country in Canada to be more well-rounded in the full extent of the arguments and the conservation uh, conversations that are going on worldwide about some of the similar topics. So I think uh, one of Tommy's last episodes was on the effectiveness of bow hunting and the lethality of of uh, archery and arrows and stuff. And so that was uh, a really good podcast, um, kind of spun off quite a conversation on, uh, on Twitter about that one when he had that out. So check them out, follow Tommy's outdoors podcast. Well, Ross, are you, are you in the full swing of tropping now? Yeah, I think most of us are, yeah, depending on the species, like we have some links, uh, Mm. otter there's a few animals that don't open until december the first but certainly for the canids most of the guys are out there putting bait out pre-baiting and and then uh you know they did most of them start this month for sure cool yeah. and mm. and yet full-blown winter set in in alberta last week <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah it was- it's our favorite time of the year always has been yeah yeah it's uh uh it comes comes hard and fast in alberta and then yeah the, ne- the next week you're in calgary in a t-shirt <laughs> so yeah uh is there is there anything you want to as 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 like a um uh, an opener or or to the to the intro or pre-log kind of the little ramble i kind of gave there about about where killing snares fit into the trapping tool set and kind of what the state of the, of the debate and the misinformation about them out there is, is, is there other things that you'd like to kind of put out there and then address? Well, sure. If, uh, snares are such a complicated thing, I think for people to understand why they weren't in the original agreement and, uh, you know, there's such a controversy around it, and and uh, probably the main reason for that is that snares. So, so to compare a snare to a, a manufactured trap. So if I uh, if I'm a company and I manufacture a trap, I can submit that trap to be tested, and then if it meets the Canadian standard, which I'd like to point out is the highest in the world, um, then it is approved for use in Canada. A snare is difficult. It's always been difficult for us to try to figure out how we would do this because uh, most or a lot of the trappers build their own snares. So now you've got too much variables, too many variables and too many uh, ways to get around this. But we've been working on improving snares and everything in and around snaring for the last almost two decades now. And so as far as Canada is concerned, Alberta has a leg up in it because 
the two systems that actually were tested and approved for best practices were are manufactured here in Alberta. So that gave us a definite advantage. But that's what kind of slowed us down. And that's why this is classified as best practices. We're not certifying a particular trap, but we're certifying the components that would meet and have been tested and proven to meet the best uh, practice for uh, for trappers. Okay. So this, okay. this will affect all across Canada. And at this point, it will be up to the, uh, the jurisdiction. So uh, Alberta, uh, BC, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, they could all have a little bit different, whether they, it, it, it will be the for Institute of Canada, which is the recognized uh, um, testing component for all of Canada. They will put out the best practice and then it will be up to the jurisdictions whether or not they legislate that or how they're going to approach it. So I can't speak to that. But I can so speak like to the, the provinces and territories would have to incorporate that into yes. their trapping regulations. Okay. Yeah, and that's what they're that's what they're looking to do. So now, it was my understanding that in the agreement on international humane trapping standards, I always find that that one's a mouthful. Is Article Seven has a footnote which allows for trappers to build traps, which I assume would include snares, and that they were not 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 like automatically included under the agreement, but it was it was meeting the intent of the agreement if the provinces or territories approved what the trappers were building. So in the case of a snare, um, like, you know, you can go to your trapping regulations and it'll have the different species and it'll, it'll list um, <clears throat> what the approved uh, types of traps are and it will approve a snare, which you're saying were mostly home-built uh, or still are mostly home-built. So is, is that a correct interpretation that, that the international agreement did in a way consent to the use of snares? Yeah, I, I don't know in the original agreement, that, but uh, because they didn't have a ruling or a way of scientifically testing. Okay. So I don't know actually how that was written up at the time. I okay. feel like I've been a that I'm, I'm getting old, Mark's so been around <laughs> for a while and I'm excited and I've been a part of a lot of it. But that part of how that's worded, I don't, I don't know how they worded that. All I know is that the, the, the snares were left out of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the agreement and the fact of which were being tested and which were not. And that's the reasoning behind it. Okay. So we We've come a long way with it. I can sure tell you that much. In in your experience over your lifetime in trapping, have you seen like the increase in the use of snares and the decrease in the use of steel? In some cases, yeah. So it you know it depends on if you look at the statistics across Canada and the fur industry, Alberta and Saskatchewan actually over the last decade have taken about 85% of all the coyotes uh, captured in, in Canada. So um, obviously then they're putting out a lot more equipment. Snares, 
the only animals in Alberta, the only animals that can be snared legally in Alberta on land are the three dogs, the fox, coyote, and wolf, and the two cats being uh, bobcat and lynx. Those five species are the only species that you can use a snare here in Alberta on land. Uh, the cougar's left out of there because cougar's not considered a fur-bearing animal. It's, it's licensed and, and uh, regulated under the big game species, so trappers have no jurisdiction over cougars. And so with that in mind, uh, the canids did not get where they are by being stupid. So they have been a survivor and they will continue to be a survivor. And uh, as an example, a conibear trap that has been tested and approved for some species of animals has to dispatch that animal within so many seconds to meet the Canadian standard. <clears throat> but try to talk a coyote or a wolf into sticking their head into a conibear. It's pretty unlikely. So snares are an excellent tool. They're much easier to work with. You can carry a lot more of them out in the bush to be able to set up. And they're, a, they're an excellent tool for the capture. So when we talk about these snares, I just wanted to point that out, that, that those are the species that we're targeting here. Okay. Okay. No, it makes, yeah. that, that's, that's a good clarification. Is it, is it true that the, the, the cost of steel traps is, has escalated because of just simply the cost of steel going up that things like links, which, he, which you can catch those in a, a body gripping trap, a, uh, like a con bear trap. Um, they will stick yeah. their head in to get bait or, or to rub, rub a scent stick or something, um, like that. <clears throat> But you're talking yeah. about traps that are like individual traps now that are getting up into like a hundred bucks a piece. And where if you're manufacturing the snares yourself, um, buying the components, buying the wire um, and, and putting them together, I mean, you got to be able to make dozens and dozens of them for the price of a single, a single body trap. And with low fur prices, that's got to be a pretty big thing for some high volume yes. trappers. Yes. Yeah. And the volume uh, has changed drastically because the, the market and demand for coyotes has dropped. So of the three dogs that we would normally set snares for, uh, coyotes are obviously far and away the more, most common species. And when the prices have dropped, then there's going to be less guys putting traps and cable out there. Yeah. But I just wanted to point out why uh, trappers would uh, want to use snares instead of a body gripping trap. And so, um, you know, that's what I'm alluding to. They are an excellent tool and uh, for, for snares, for trappers not to be able to use snares would severely handicap them. And when they're made properly, they're astounding. Uh, yeah. What yeah. we've been able to do now compared to what we did, you know, many years ago, uh, it's like night and day, the difference. Well, let's, let's dive into that. So <clears throat> walk us through where you're at with the technology of killing snares. Like what are the components? What do they do? Um, how are these things put together? And then lead us into what, um, what the testing results have been on, on the effectiveness of, of that new technology. Okay. Well, the first thing, the, the most important thing to me to, to clarify is that a, a killing neck snare 
the, the snare is designed to occlude the arteries between the heart and the brain. And it's not meant to choke the animal. If you're trying to choke an animal to death, that's not humane. It's not acceptable. And so early on, snares were not a lot of consideration was given to that aspect of it. The whole premise of that, you know, way back when I was a little wee guy was just catch the animal. That, you know, that's what people were talking about. But we've come a long way from there. And as an individual, I have to look at myself in the mirror every night. I've raised five children, and we talk a lot about the life and death of animals. You know, we, we, uh, we had cattle on ranches, and so my children wanted to know. So I have a very high, uh, like I'm a realist, and I have to be honest with myself. And if I'm putting something out and it's causing suffering to an animal, I don't sleep well at night, and I won't use it. If I've had... A wreck and, and uh, nothing is 100%. But if 90% or uh, 90 or 92%, I would say, at the time I'm having effective and quick cat, quick, quick dispatch or quick kills, then I'm happy with that. So I just wanted to clarify that right away. The, the object of a snare is to stop blood flow between the heart and the brain. That's the whole purpose of it. And if it's not doing that, it shouldn't be acceptable anywhere. Right. So that... And that is one Sorry. of the, the the campaign tactics out there. They talk about, you know, you hear like choking, strangling, like this type of thing. So they're they're making the the person in the general public that doesn't understand it, uh, you know, the trapping and the technology, kind of thinking about like somebody putting your hands around your neck and trying to choke you, right? Like they're trying to like, you know, close your windpipe off and prevent the exchange of oxygen, but that's not. You're, you're talking about cutting off the uh, the carotid veins, I think, are the ones near the surface, right? The artery, yeah. Okay. So some people mix that up. So um, what you see on the outside of the neck on an animal or when an animal is skinned, those are the jugglers. So the jugglers are, are veins. They're nicknamed the juggler. But a vein is a return line, right? That's coming yep. out. but. An artery is coming out of the engine room. That's the driver. And so when you uh, when you don't get a good capture, um, then, well, I guess what I'm trying to clarify is we're not trying to restrict the jugglers. We're actually trying to restrict the arteries, and that's coming out of the heart. That's The that's carotid the, arteries. Okay. Okay. That's where the... It- it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy, too. I, I used to dabble a little bit in um, jiu-jitsu. And for those who have never actually experienced a true choke, like when, cause that's the whole point of choking somebody out in jujitsu is you're actually doing that. You're cutting the blood flow off to the brain to make them pass out. And I can just imagine it's the same thing for an animal in a snare. It's like when you get those chokes on, it's, it's not like uh, you're sitting there like, uh oh, as soon as that artery is closed, your vision, it's like you're 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 going down. Like you're blacking out. And it's it's fast. It's very fast. <laughs> almost almost instantaneous when that those arteries get blocked, you, you start to go to sleep. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the whole goal of this. So that that has been uh, quite a process over the last 15 years of working on that. 
but that's okay. the object of it. So in order to do that, just to give you some background, the original snares and legalities needed to be a strong enough cable, which was generally aircraft cable, with a locking device, which would only uh, slide one way so that when the animal got caught and struggled, it would tighten the lock and the lock would not loosen off so that the more the animal struggled, the tighter that it went. And in theory, that's, that's great. But with the canids, it wasn't good enough to be able to, to do a humane job of it. So over the years, uh, different people, uh, Bruce Bertram from Manitoba, Canada, was the original designer of the power snare, which is a big spring device. Um, I don't have one to show here. But uh, anyway, it, it's an amazing tool, and, it, and, and we continue to use them. But in some uh, situations, they're not practical, and they're very, very expensive as well. So we've tried all kinds of different things over the years. And uh, the United States was trying different things, and we've kind of put our, put our thoughts together and corresponded back and forth. And now, thanks to two of the guys from here in Alberta, namely Martin Seneker uh, and Corey Grover. Martin Seneker from Seneker, uh, his device has all got Seneker name on it. So Seneker kill springs, triggers, things like that. So I refer to him as Seneker. And then Corey Grover, whom I refer to, uh, his company is Lights Out Snaring. So he's come up with a very similar design, a little bit different spring and, and, a, and a different um, trigger that goes onto the system. Now, for somebody that doesn't know anything about snaring, this may be hard to, to put it all together without actually being, having everybody in the room so that I can break it down and show you. But um, if you can just imagine a piece of aircraft cable that, that, that's set out so when the animal gets caught and walks through that, and he fights, there's a spring on there that's up against the lock. And so when he provides enough power into that, that spring flies open and it slams the uh, lock, in this case a cam lock, or what's called a sure hold, manufactured by, uh, by Bridger. And uh, that then holds that up so tight that that lock cannot move. And so... Uh, the, the animal begins to succumb to it immediately. That's the whole purpose of this. But getting to this point has been quite a journey. So, yeah. And the, yeah. the reason for that is that the carotid arteries run right next inside, right next to the trachea. So it's not something really close. It takes a great deal of force to be able to do that. Now, for some of your listeners, um, no death is pleasant, uh, you know, I've, I've researched death and I've thought, what's, what's the quickest and the best way to put down an animal, as an example? And obviously a bullet in the brain is probably the quickest thing, but that's not always practical. So, um, but whatever it is, I think we can all agree, whether it's a mouse trap or a wolf trap or whatever it is, our goal is to ensure that that takes care of business as fast as is possible, as scientifically possible. And we have been working on this stuff uh, in, in Canada for, for a very long time, as you know, with traps and now with snares. So 
So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a it's a good way to uh, that you've done to 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 verbally sort of describe um, like a, a a killing snare, you know, for folks. So I mean the the basic, it, you know, it's a loop um, that can you know slide smaller but not it can't back off and get bigger because of the Ross said there's a little sliding one-way lock on it then when that closes on the animal as tight as possible then the spring which has actually been cocked and held by a trigger the animal puts force against that and releases it in it and it's almost like it's almost like a power like a little power engine that just then takes that snare and just bam, like right now, like, like cinches it down another like four or five inches. And then like Curtis said, then it's instant, instant blackout, lack of oxygen to the brain and brain death. But the animal is unconscious when, when death occurs. So from, as I understand it, from so suffering, you know, struggling, all that kind of stuff. It's the animal is unconscious. It never regains consciousness again. Right. And to do that, Mark, there was, um, you know, there was a lot of people that were trying to get in on it, you know, and, and uh, manufacturers were trying different things. So people, you know, may say, well, I've tried those things and I wasn't very impressed with those springs or uh, that's not been my finding. So we had to refine all of that until we found out what works all the time and so <clears throat> just because somebody has a spring on there if that spring hasn't been tested and approved then um, there's no guarantee that that thing's going to work properly so that's what we had to do the good springs just to give you some idea are actually manufactured out of piano wire it's not just cheap not just a cheap spring there's quite a process to making sure that those are consistently when they're manufactured do what they're set to do now, to add to all of this, we had two mandates in our goal to do this, to ensure that death was as quick to instantaneous as could, as could be possibly done, and to ensure that if there was a chance that we could catch a non-target, so supposing we set for a coyote and a deer walked into it, we wanted to have a system in place so that the loop itself would pop open and allow that uh, bigger or more powerful animal to get away. So we had to come up with a breakaway system. Now I'm not taking any credit to this because I'm not, I'm not the scientist, but uh, I cannot believe the difference that this has made. So we now have coyote snares that we manufacture at the ATA, at the Alberta Trappers Association, that trappers can buy that are already made and they're made properly. And on those is a, is a number 265 breakaway. And the number 265 breakaway was tested and any deer that were captured were released. So the S hook actually opens so that the, the, the ring of the loop is, is broken open so that it can't hold the animal. We don't want the snare to break and the animal run off with this thing around our neck. We wanted the loop to be able to open so that when the so that the deer can get away and not be caught in that capture. Oh, it's kind of like you just sort of like like somebody just like pulled your your 
your boot laces and they just open up and, and released as opposed to just making it a bigger circle. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's, it's an S hook that mechanically uh, pries open so that um, it, it, it opens the loop. So in so, order to do that, I mean, so those things, those things are, are those, those breakaway devices, like they have like a poundage rating on them or a certain amount of force, like that a coyote is not able to exert that much, but a deer, a deer can, like would a small deer still be stronger than a large coyote? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, for those of you that are hunters or, or you've watched deer, you, you probably understand that part of it. When a deer panics and goes into, into the uh, flight mode, it just bolts. It just springs and, and, and it, it thrusts because it's used to having a lot of momentum. And because of that force, that S hook opens, that, that S hook will open. So they have, they have the power. So the only, um, in the testing, when, um, so, so when we, I guess what I'm getting at is that people would say, well, what about a fawn? A fawn's not big enough. But trapping season doesn't open until the fawns are just about as big as our mother. So I just want, you know, your listeners to keep that yeah. in mind. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, so that that's why um that's why it's been really effective so we're talking about white-tailed deer here because white-tailed deer are a big part of our province which is the smaller between the white tail and the mule deer so a mule deer has no problem if it in opening up one of those breakaway devices now when we so, put out snares for, for wolves that's a little different because any snare that would open and allow a deer to go will also let a wolf go so we had to come up with a bigger breakaway in that case. But the amount of wolf snares that are put out in comparison to coyote snares, there, there isn't even much of a comparison when you compare the numbers. So oh, I, I just want to make sure I clarify that part. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. And bigger animals like an elk or a moose, if they do inadvertently step in it they probably just carry a, carry on like it didn't they didn't even notice anything because they probably smash and push through alders and willows and stuff that probably exert more breaking force than the, than the snares do those big guys yeah so what yeah, that's right. so so the 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 tests that were done on the coyotes killing snare systems you said they focused on testing the components so that would be like this the strength of the springs uh out of a hundred springs are they all um got this you know the same amount of power plus or minus you know uh, a certain tolerance the the breakaway devices would obviously be tested to make sure that you know they consistently like come apart at x number of pounds are those some of the tests that yep. were run Yes. Okay. Exactly. Now, was there any work done on like actual animals to to yes. test the snares on them or examine them afterwards to see how how quick or how effective there there was? That was part of the testing. 
Okay. Yes, it was. And the way they did that was that they, we got trappers that are already trapping and trappers that, that knew that, you know, the old system was not ideal. And, you know, they, like us, wanted something better. And so that's how we started the whole program. And so each trapper that took part in this, um, he had a criteria that he had to follow. And then from there, what happens is when the animal is captured, the, the trapper doesn't do anything to figure, figure it out. He's not the scientist. What he does is he cuts the cable about six inches above and then, and then the uh, a feral is crimped on there so that the lock can't move. And then those animals are taken to the laboratory where, where they perform the ne necropsies on those animals. And then they can run a dye through them. It's quite a long process and you probably don't want me to explain it all, but basically from there, they can tell whether the uh, occlusion occurred by injecting dye through the artery system with the snare in place. So it's, it's actually extremely fascinating. And I got to be a part of that. And for selfish reasons, I was right in there because this has been dear to me. I, I, I wanted to know why has it taken us so long to get good at this? And where is that artery? I want to see every part of that. And so I was shoulder to shoulder uh, for some of it anyway, with, with the veterinarian when they did the testing and, uh, it was, it was, it's amazing. So uh, I'm very proud of it uh, as a trapper, just as, uh, as an Alberta trapper. And uh, I'm thrilled with the results. So that's how they were able to prove whether or not uh, the, the arteries were occluded. That's, uh, in other words, she was slammed shut. No blood can get through. To prove that, they used a dye to inject back in those animals that were in the laboratory. And and then looking for the dye reaching the other side of, of the snare. Yes. Okay, okay. And wow, that's 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 quite fascinating. So from from those necropsies are the I would assume this would be like veterinarians that are doing yes. doing that work. Yeah, okay. Um, are they able to like assess or would they just know that, that like the time that it took an animal to like black out and, and, and to actual, actually die f like from that? Is there numbers around that, that I, you know, I think people want to want to know like how long does this process take? How quickly did they black out? And then how quickly did they pass away? Yeah, well, that's been the tricky part of it. And how they come up with that, I like I wasn't, I didn't get to be a part of that. But I know that, uh, that there's more than just that. But they look for bruising in the heart. So when I spoke with the veterinarian, I said, what happens? And, you know, why, are we, why, why are you doing that? And they said, if the heart runs out of blood at any time, like if there's no feed in there, it will bruise immediately. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was another fascinating part of it, but there's there may be more to it, um, uh, Mark. But I'm uh, I'm fascinated by it. I'm dedicated to it, but I'm still I'm not a biologist, and I'm certainly not a veterinarian. And so uh, my experience with it can only go so far. But just the bit that I was able to be exposed to, I was so impressed with the lengths that they go through to ensure 
uh, that the science backs up what's required in order to show best practices and what was actually done to occlude the blood between the heart and the brain. Wow. So, wow. Now, we were talking just before the show that any trap that we have out there, even even a live trap, like, you know, they sell them at Canadian Tire for skunks, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a wire cage, a little trap door on it, and you stick the whatever on the other end, the peanut butter, something walks into it, trips, trips the plate, and your animal is like inside unharmed in this trap. But even something that simple requires for that trap to be deployed in the best possible way so that you don't catch an animal half in or half out of it or, you know, the, the, the door closes on its pelvis and the thing's struggling back and forth. Like there's every single one of these traps uh, that I talked at the beginning of the show has got like they teach you in the trapping course, like the best way to deploy these from like how many inches above the ground, how big is the loop on the snare? Where do you anchor them? All these sorts of things. So what are, what are the, the best practices around a killing snare to ensure that, you know, the spring, the trigger, the, the cam lock, the, the cable and everything does its job uh, as quickly as possible? Yeah, well, that, and that's what we teach in the courses. So anybody that wants to put up snares, first of all, has to take a trapping course in order to be licensed. So even a yep. landowner, even a landowner has no authorization to put out snares. He can shoot to protect his livestock, but he cannot put out traps and snares. If he wants to do that, he has to get, he has to take them a standard course so that he knows what he's doing. And we also encourage trappers to take a one-day snaring workshop if they're going to really focus on snares so that they get the extra training that, uh, that will help them to be good at it. But in a nutshell, the length of the snare is primary to the type of terrain that you're that you're catching animals in. So in southern Alberta, uh, you know, I'm down in that Brooks country, I used to haul cows down there, and, and I think there's only four trees in that whole region, and they're going to die because cows have been rubbing on them. So <laughs> they don't have the option, is what I'm saying, to attach their snare to a tree. So they're ground staking. And so the length of the snare... Uh, you know, it's, it's better to have a longer snare so that the animal has a running force so that when they hit the end of the slack, those features can, can do, or those components can do as they were intended to do. If we compare that to those of us up here in, in our neck of the woods, or most of us, we're using trees. So the whole point is a secure, solid anchor, first of all. Without that, nothing's going to work properly. Second of all, um, that the snare is attached or um, positioned from the tree with what we call a collar support. Now that could be, trappers nickname, a, they, they call them a whammy. Uh, there's lots of nicknames for them, but in the industry, we call it a collar support. And that collar support sits there so that uh, they can attach a wire that will hold that snare in the perfect spot at the right height off the ground and the right size loop so that they don't catch, have a bad catch. It's 90 degrees from the trail where the animal is coming. 
And what happens then, instead of the animal just getting his head through the loop, the collar support holds the rest of the snare, the length of the snare, so that just the, the round part of the loop starts to close. And then when the animal realizes something's wrong and really goes crazy, that, that, that part has already done its part. And we get high up on the neck captures, which then makes every, every difference in the world in how quickly the animal succumbs to the snare. So is that a, is that a key, a key thing is, is for that snare to be like, like just under the jaw, like very high on the neck, you said, is that like a yeah, really so that, important part to a rapid, a rapid death? Yeah. You want the snare to close as quickly as possible while it's still high up. So the height off the ground, when the animal comes in, he catches it just under the chin. That's ideal. So then the, the round part of the loop starts to close. Instead of, the snare starting to walk with him until you each reach the end of the slack. The collar support starts the, the loop closing immediately so that you ensure a much higher catch up on the neck. Okay. That makes a world of difference. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the support system is this kind of like a, it's a framework and, like I've just known it as like a, a wire that sticks out over like the trail or whatever that you that your, your loop is on. And it's just, yeah. there's a little collar, like a little tube or a little spring or something that just very delicately holds the loop of the snare at the height um, for, for the animal, like a coyote that's, that's walking forward. And once that closes, it it comes off this little wire arm that that's that's holding it. It's not a it's not a rigid system. The snare still anchored back to the tree, like you said. But it's like this, and and I know setting them myself. It's like you, you're looking for that fine balance between like just getting it to there, and then if if an animal touches it, just it it comes off and kind of like quickly closes on its neck, and if you bump it or you bang a bush or whatever you're doing it, then the whole thing just like closes and you're back trying to get it all set up again nicely. And, and I know it was just, it's a lot of actually very, very delicate fine tuning work to get that all properly balanced there to, to, to be effective. And now what about, um, the diameter of the cables that are being used how does that come into play in in the lethality that's, that's, of, of the cable snares? Yeah, so that that's uh, something that's evolved over the years. We've uh, um, the trick to it to, to to make it a little easier to the trick is to get a small enough diameter cable so that it can go in right away. And when I say in, I mean indent into the into into the skin okay without it being so thick that it won't uh, dig in enough to occlude the artery but still thick enough so that it would never break so there's a you know you have to have that balance so years ago uh, th there was some rough stuff out there but now um, most of the Coyote trappers, I don't know if I'd say most, 
uh, a high percentage of the coyote trappers are using a 1 16th cable at the killing end because it's the right diameter. Some are, are, are concerned that that's too small, so they've gone to a 5 64th. The thickest that I know of anybody that uses is 3 32nd cable, but 5 64th is just about the perfect in the middle. So personally, I use 5 64th for wolf or coyote. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's, that's a good point. Now, does does the thickness of the cable or or anything to do with this system is it affected the thicker the fur gets as the winter goes on cuz i mean just these these guys get some pretty pretty heavy neck fur on it and any of the of the canids actually get quite quite thick fur and if you you know just people thinking of your dog you know you get the big matted hair and stuff around the neck where the wood ticks like to hide all that kind of thing. Now it, how, how was that addressed in best practices, the technology and how, how, how much of a influencing factor is that neck hair? Well, it is. And and one of the solutions in that came from the spring itself because that spring is so powerful. And so that ensures that, you know, years ago, we tried all kinds of things, Mark. We had uh, one of the best things that a guy came up with, and I tried it right away, but in the end, I, it didn't turn out to work that great. But it was a, a bead that, that, a, that a, a crafter would use. So a bead that went ahead of the lock in hopes that that bead would slide down and, and clear a path so that that lock couldn't get hung up in the, in the, in the fur. But it wasn't quite that simple. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we tried a few things like that, and uh, as I said already, I'm I'm a stickler and I'm fussy about everything that I do. And so, just to give you the concept of it, going from the old style snares that um, sometimes you had to put the you had to shoot the animal because it you know it it it, it didn't succumb during the night, and that was awful. I, I couldn't live with that, so I pulled everything. I, I couldn't accept that. When we went to the springs, and once we perfected that system, oh my goodness, what a difference. So we're going to go out there. There's, there's no fur damage to the animal because they have succumbed so quickly that the area isn't all, you know, destroyed or tore up or anything like that. That It, it happens very, very quickly. Yeah. But it hasn't yeah. been a simple thing. And it's hard. You know, a lot of people, even some of your listeners, maybe what, if they're a hunter, Hunting is one thing, but snaring is another uh, to a lot of people. So um, maybe they find it hard to understand or hard to believe, but you can, uh, if you trust me, I guess you can take my word for it. I cannot believe the difference. And uh, so now I, as an instructor, I'm excited to teach about snares because I know what they're capable of. And I know if they're properly used, they make the, they're like night and day. How quickly that animal Is it, is it true that the cats, um, particularly the lynx, their, their carotids and the neck muscles are in a different place than on the dogs? Meaning that I've, I'm to understand that the carotids are just like literally just under the skin 
on on a on a links, and they're very easy for a snare to to clamp those down. Where the coyotes, you've still got some protective neck muscles and whatnot that the power snare has has to close to get the occlusion on, or or is that not yes. not true? <laughs> well, that's correct. I, I um, again, I'm not a biologist, but there's no difference uh, in comparison for how long, uh, like with even without a spring, a lynx will die very fast in a snare very, very quickly. They just pull, it shuts it off, they roll their eyes and down they go. So I, I couldn't believe how quickly, and I wasn't all that excited about seeing that. But once I saw how quickly uh, they succumbed to it, it made sense because I, you know, I've captured a lot of lynx in my life. And sometimes they'll come into a set, they get caught in the snare, they pull back and they're laying there. But they didn't even disturb the sticks or anything that are in there. So bobcat apparently are the same. Um, I'm not a bobcat guy because we don't normally see them this far north. So I didn't get to experiment as much with them, but uh, the lynx, you bet. Huh. And lynx and bobcat, pretty hard to tell them apart when you skin them. The, the, the actual f physiology of their body, the way they're made up. Okay. In interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, so now the 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 Fur Institute's um, test facility uh, in Vegarville, right, in Alberta, yep. they've completed uh, the testing on the snare components. Um, the necropsies have been done on coyotes. Veterinarians have written a report on this, like I guess the effectiveness, um, the, how quickly the animals die, the humaneness of, of that death, if anything else was going on. And this was kind of all put together. And you said there's, there was at the beginning, there's two systems, two commercially available snaring systems. Yeah, the, well, there's, there's a lot of different locks and systems out there, but the only two systems that met the testing was the Seneca system Okay. Uh, and the lights out snaring system. Okay. Both of those, um, well, uh, it had to be over 90%. I forget what the actual criteria, but it had to be well over 90% of the time that they occluded. And they were able to do that. I was thrilled when we saw the results from this. So, okay. Wow. You know, when you're wow. testing something like this, if you look over, Throughout the world, no one has done anything like this. So, you know, trapping has been booted around and hated. And, you know, we have been through the most amazing process over the last 50 years that I've been involved in it. And uh, I am so impressed with what has been accomplished. And... Like it or not like it, I don't know any death that I would consider a pleasant one. But um, in in the trapping industry, to be able to put animals down as quickly as we are, and in some cases, it's quicker than they could do with capital punishment. So, you know, I think it's it's very worthy of people's respect as to what's gone into all of this testing whether it be the snares or all of the traps that were finally approved. And even though uh, 
we have such strict standards. Lots of people will watch YouTube and they'll see someone, you know, putting out snares or putting out traps or whatever, but they're not from Canada. And Canada has the strict guidelines. You know, even the yeah. United States, some, some of the stuff there was, we outlawed that 50 years ago here. So yeah, like the, like the, the, yeah. Uh, the, the clawed foothold traps are still legal in some places in the U.S. from what I understand. And that still is the imagery that's used in anti-trapping yeah. campaigns in Canada. And the first thing we usually say is like, good God, folks, those things are not legal here, but they're a yeah. weapon that's used, used against trapping. So yeah, that's... That's um, so. So now, what you were saying at the beginning, so the the testing is has, a, like, approved the components of those the Seneca and and the Lights Out system. They have their own yes. specific line um, of products that a trapper can buy those and still build their own snares as long as they're using the components. Um, that you're saying that that that's a recommendation from the trapping institute or this reporter from the fur institute of canada now it would be up to the individual provinces to put into their trapping regulations thou must use system a or system b for coyotes lynx bobcat wolf yeah okay and I, you you'll probably know better than th than this than I would, but it basically kind of seems that whatever the Fur Institute has published as certified under the agreement, all the provinces have just simply adopted that. Like when you look at, at least what I've looked at, like a, a certified Martin trap or a Fisher trap or whatever, it's like, it's the same the same manufacturer, the same numbers across all the provinces. It doesn't seem like the provinces have varied from this at, at all. Well, there is some differences in trapping in that uh, we have traps that are approved for Canada. That's, that's a federal, that's Canadian. But there are, as an example, in British Columbia, there are more species than there is in, in Alberta that, that, they can, that a licensed trapper can use with neck snares. Okay. So, um, yeah, in Saskatchewan, uh, so another comparison is in Alberta, there are only the same five species that we can use a footholding device, okay, a restraining device, which is a foothold trap. There's other restraining devices, as you mentioned, cage traps and things like that. But for a, a land, foothold type land set on land, just the, the three dogs, fox, coyote, and the wolf, and the lynx and the bobcat. Those are the only species that we can use those on. And so that, that's the law here in Alberta. But in some of the provinces, there's a couple of other animals that they allow that you can trap in a foothold trap. Okay. So there, there are some provincial laws that differ, uh, but as far as the Canadian standard, the trap has to be approved in Canada to be used in any province. I hope that, that maybe explains it better. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure it does. Are you optimistic that these results on the snare components will be adopted across Canada? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we we had a meeting uh, and uh, 
almost all of the provinces. There was a couple that weren't there for that last meeting, and there'll be an, you know, there'll be more meetings. But uh, there was uh, it was two days of meetings, but basically each province is looking at doing it in their own system. So they had a lot of questions, and I felt really privileged. Well. I don't know if I call it privilege, but I'm so happy that in Alberta, we've been working on this for so long. So if you look at it, if if you tell a trapper he has to do this, it's hard for him to accept because, you know, he's got a way of doing things. He's put considerable time and training and, and money to do it. And then you tell him he's going to have to change that and he's going to have to do this. In Alberta, because we've been working on it for so long, the trappers themselves, the ones stepped up to the plate and found out that this was an incredible system. And the guys that were reluctant, you know, instead of us telling them they had to do this, they basically talked to their buddies and said, oh my God, wait till you try these things. The proof's in the pudding. And so it wasn't so difficult for Alberta because they tried them and not every trapper's using them. I don't, I don't, I don't know percentage wise, but any trapper that I've talked to is thrilled with them. So I know a lot of trappers because I'm so old, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they really are remarkable in the difference, Mark. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. And, yeah. uh, you know, trappers are, there's some bozos out there. I mean, there's, there's guys that don't care or dishonest or doing things wrong, but I've even heard there's some of them in the police force and school teachers. And, but overall, trappers themselves have learned an awful lot about death and the dying of animals, and they have a conscience that needs to, they need to know that what they're doing is the best that's available to them. And that's what we're asking of our trappers. Right. Okay. So just to wrap things up here, do you feel at this point in Canada's trapping history that, that the three types of trap systems that I talked about at the beginning, the restraining traps, the body gripping, killing traps, and the killing snares are like on an equal playing field as far as the level of these being humane methods of take. Are they all, they do their jobs differently, but are, are you confident and happy with where Canada's at on all of those methods? Yes. Yes, I, I am. And, and uh, you know, each each thing, it, when it's tested, it's tested for what it's intended to be used for. So a foothold trap, obviously, the, the animal doesn't die in it. So here in Alberta, we have time restraints. So if I take that over and I, I'm going to trap coyotes on my neighbor's land and, and I'm going to put foothold traps in, they have to be checked every day you don't put those out and then a week later go back and look at them and the testing was is there any damage that was done to that animal while he was restrained in that trap for that period of time within a 24-hour period and any trap that did any damage to the foot broke skin or uh, uh, in any way uh, there's several criteria in that they had to meet broke bones tendons yeah yeah broke the skin, any of that kind of thing. So yeah, it's not a pleasant thing, but. So any of the traps that did those things weren't, they were rejected. Is that, is that what, what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And really, you know, when, uh, 
why why would a trapper want to use anything but the best? So yeah, yeah, you know we're licensed in Alberta. We're licensed and regulated as an industry, not a sport. So we have very strict guidelines around that. And in that industry, um, we're trying to ensure that our trappers have the best available tools to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. And I wish we had more time to explain what happens in conservation when trapping is removed from it. It's not a pretty picture, but um, anyway. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Now, just uh, the last thing, there still must be folks out there that you know of that are like, I can still do better. Like I can still improve upon this and they're probably still tinkering with components and all this type of stuff, still trying to get better. Yes. Yes. And I, I'm happy for that. And I hope that we continue to test traps and equipment. I I don't want to see an end to it because we owe it to the wildlife. Um, we want to be the best that we can be. And so we want more things tested. It gives more tools. And when things get better, we want to be a part of that. And you know, that, that's what we've done. I mean, when we look at next snares, one, there was wrecks in the past. We put out a, a thing through our instructors that would, would they be able to bring the snare in, bring it to us so that we could look at it and study it all together so that we could all together find out what went wrong here. What happened? How come this happened? Why did why, why did there, why was there such a struggle? Why was that cable twisted or, or whatever? That, that shouldn't be happening. If the thing is working properly, they shouldn't have time for that. They shouldn't have time to chew or or, or do any of that kind of stuff. Yep, yep. we got there. Awesome. Uh, it sounds like a lot of a lot of years of hard work and a lot of years of dedication by trappers wanting to be as effective and lethal as possible because it's the right thing to do. And I think bottom line for me, the narrative that I hear from the anti-trapping community is the antithesis of what trappers really are. They're conscious people that want this, their job um, of trapping and to be as humane and effective and rapid as possible. And the narrative that's out there is trying to portray the exact opposite of the actual yeah. character of a trapper. Uh, and, and, and that, that's part of our goal here uh, on this podcast was to put some of that information out there that, um, you know, the, the people, and, and, and I'll just ask people, just think about some, some really simple questions like if this topic comes up from what you've learned on this podcast. So who are the people that have been tirelessly working for decades, if not centuries? I mean, I was reading a book that was published in 1938 where uh, like a, a scientist was actually studying the way that uh, indigenous peoples in Eastern Canada were were snaring animals and it was like they were snaring caribou and bears and, and, um, grouse and, and, and whiskey jacks and stuff with some pretty crude technology. It was, you know, what they had available, but that was like centuries and centuries ago. So who has been 
decade by decade, incrementally improving on the technology that probably originated from the use of animal sinews and snares. Who, who are those people doing that? Are traps getting more effective at killing and more humane or less as time goes? Ask yourself that question. Who's doing this? It's pretty obvious. It's the trappers. It's trappers over the centuries that have designed and continually improved these things to, to where we are. It's not the anti-trappers that are pouring money and time and research into building more effective traps. They're simply trying to create a narrative, a false narrative around how the state of the technology isn't humane or it is cruel or, or, or whatever. And it's just not the truth of what trappers are really doing. Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and I'm, I'm guess, glad to be here. I appreciate being invited. I mean, it, it's you, you're really, I think, one of the first times that I know of, of sort of publicly coming out with the news that the Fur Institute of Canada has tested uh, the components for killing snares for coyotes and has arrived on a humane system that it is recommending to the provinces to, to, to adopt. I have not seen that announcement anywhere else. So I don't know, probably not the first ones to break it, but um, thanks for you being the person to come and tell everybody what your industry has been doing in this regards. What's next in the testing queue at Bakerville, Alberta? Well, there's uh, uh, the, the final parts of the testing on, with wolves on snares. Okay. And then, of course, there's ongoing testing with different manufacturers have fixed parts, components of traps, and they want them tested. So that's that type of stuff is still being done out there as well. Awesome. So that, like I said, I hope that continues, uh, that that always continues uh, and you're right, it's trappers that are inventing these things because they're the only ones that that have the know-how to be able to do that. And so we have manufacturers right here in Alberta and the two snaring systems that passed, those two guys are avid trappers. And uh, they didn't they didn't put all that time in because they thought they were going to get rich. <laughs> yeah, they're certainly not getting rich, but because they have a conscience and because they care. That's... Cool. It's good. Great. Good note to end on. Ross, thanks so much for taking time with us tonight. Uh, Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Jay Martin Taxidermy out of Kelowna, British Columbia. Go check him out. Maybe he's got, uh, he, well, I know he just posted October 5th. I was just looking. He's got a really, really cool uh, life-size wolf mount on his Instagram page, really cool base, really nice fur on that wolf. So go check him out. He's got a website, jmartintaxidermy.com. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. You can find him on Instagram at jmartintaxidermy. Give him a follow, show him some love on social media. Talk about all the cool stuff that he's doing. Cause he does do some really impressive work. And uh, yeah, we're just pretty stoked that he's, title sponsor for the hunter conservationist podcast so as always big shout out and thank you to jay martin taxidermy 
Cool. You bet. Thanks, Jesse. Ross, what's up tomorrow? Are you heading out on the trap line or do you got town chores? No, I'm heading over to the, well, just actually on the outside of the, of the trap line, there's some people there that are just swamped with beaver and they flooded out part of their road and uh, destroyed a bunch of their trees and stuff because they didn't, they didn't know what to do and they've been trying to get help. And so I'm going to go in there and see if we can clean up some of the mess. And uh, they're really good people. They, they, they really wanted the beaver to be there. And uh, that's what we try to tell people. Of course you do. It's just you have to ex accept that they're going to keep having babies. <laughs> and, uh, every year they have more babies. And pretty soon you, you just don't have enough habitat to, to sustain them. So anyway, I'm looking forward to working with these people because they come along with it as well, you know, as they see why you're doing what you're doing and everything. So cool. I like my work. Oh, good. Good for you. It sure shows you got a lot of, a lot of heart. Um, hey folks, Ross Hinter, Alberta Trappers Association. And thank you to Alberta Trappers Association for letting you come on. Uh, always enjoy talking to you guys. Uh, Bill was the last time on the show. So really enjoy i think you guys are leaders uh in trapping in canada in both what we talked about today was trap designs uh and training and communication and your involvement in conservation uh i think is um top notch in canada you're good role models and thank you ata and thank you alberta for that all right, everybody, we will see you in the next episode.